I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, I don't that feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Confessions of a Native Son. I'm your host, Mike Stedman, a Marine Corps veteran, entrepreneur, and aspiring author who enjoys thought-provoking and engaging dialogue about race, culture, and business. In this episode, I chop it up with another brother from another mother, Mr. Nate Jester. Nate is an African-American Naval Academy graduate and Marine Infantry officer who recently graduated from Harvard Law School. Nate relocated to his hometown of Atlanta, Georgia, in order to leverage his human capital in the community that raised him. Nate's passion is to uplift oppressed people in the United States and utilize his newly acquired legal knowledge as a force for good. Harvard Law School has given Nate the words to describe the issues of education, crime, and poverty he witnessed growing up and an understanding of the legal and political systems that perpetuate those issues. To be quite frank, Nate is one of the smartest people I know. He double majored at the Naval Academy in political science and economics, maintaining nearly a 4.0 average the entire time. I brought Nate on the platform to better understand his experience of being young, black, and educated. He shares insight into how his giftedness was almost overlooked at an early age due to culturally biased aptitude testing, growing up in an all-black school system, the challenge of maintaining his blackness at the Naval Academy and in the Marines, and why it's problematic when black people let others determine our value and worth. Nate is done dumbing down his greatness and is comfortable fully expressing himself as an unapologetic black man. As always, I truly appreciate you for sharing your time with me, and I hope you enjoy today's show. You hold your head up and grin. You start a business with him. You make commitments to him. We all can profit and win and reinvest with our friends. And circle back to the hood and teach them youngsters to do it. Do it. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another edition of my show. I'm chopping it up today with my brother from another mother, Mr. Nate Jester. How you doing, Nate? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm really excited to be here, and I, I appreciate you having me on the show. Man, I appreciate you coming on, man. My boy Nate, man, he's bearded up. He's trying to get like me. He's rocking a Black Lives Matter shirt. Just straight flexing. I love it. <laughs> no, I will say you inspired me with the beard. I saw you do it first, and I and I and that's how I became to to believe in myself that I could do it too. So I had to go get the essential oil package. Uh, yeah, and then make it happen for sure. Man, it's um, it's funny when I was in the military, right? And I used to hear about Marines having trouble getting jobs afterwards. After they left the military, I always right. tell them because they grew out these long beards and weren't looking professional with their tattoos. Right. But man, I fast forward now, man, that should have never, that was wrong thinking. Mm. You know? And I say yeah. that now too because I see so many graphic designers, artists, they got the sleeve tattoos, beard, just killing it. And so right. I, I equate it to back to performance, you know? Mm. As long as you can perform and get the job done, I don't think certain things should matter. I think it's just a power play. Certain people have, you know, they get to set what professional looks like or what business looks like. And I think I, I like to push back against that. And that's one of the reasons why I walk, rock the beard and the Mohawk fade as a, as a young black entrepreneur. Well, I'm not young no more. I'm like 33, but you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> you're still young. You're still young. Believe it, brother. Yeah. 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 I, I, I agree 100%. I think it's a way, uh, one of the ways that we control people is by policing their appearance. And if we can get you to, you know, conform uh, you know, just this one piece of your identity, which is how you look, then it's that much easier to make you conform in other ways, in other spaces with your ideas and your, your thoughts and your, uh, and your beliefs and that sort of thing. So I agree 100%. 
Yeah, so me and Nate, man, we known each other for a minute, man. We boxed on the Navy boxing team together back in, uh, what was it, 2008, 2010? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, it was about there. Over 10 years ago. Yeah, man, we were frat brothers. We served in the military, and this dude is texting me like another person. Before (laughs) we got on the podcast, I was like, man, who are you talking to? (laughs) That's what happens when brothers go to Harvard, man. They start talking all proper start sending the proper emails. I'm like, bro, it's just Mike. You were just at my house. Stop sending me the professional email, right? You talk to me like a human being. So he's a little bit institutionalized, but it's all right. We're going to help him out today. It's all about the paper trail. It's all about that paper trail. You know, when, right. they, when they when they look at all my texts and all my emails, they're going to be like, this is a respectful, professional individual, no matter how I sound when I get on the podcast, on the phone, you know? Yeah. So Nate, do me a favor, man. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience, man? Absolutely. I'm Nate Jester, born and raised in Southwest Atlanta, Georgia. I went to public school my whole life. Uh, when I finished Mays High School in 08, I went to the Naval Academy, which is where I first met Mike, and we developed our friendship there. Uh, Pledged into the Omega Sapphire fraternity while I was at uh, the Naval Academy. Graduated 2012, joined the Marine Corps, uh, went the infantry route, inspired by Mike, honestly, who told me about infantry and told me it was the way to go. <laughs> Yeah, no, you know, I did. You know, yeah, appreciate listen, you. Appreciate you know, I'm always faithful yet, but it's all right though. Bless it. It's my fault. You're right. We, you know, we didn't know, but it was a learning experience and it was a growing experience. And I, I can appreciate th- that that I took from my military service. I uh, got out in 2017. A couple weeks later, I started at Harvard Law School, and I, I just recently graduated in in May of this year. And so, once I graduated, I moved back down to my hometown of Atlanta. And uh, right now I'm, I'm studying for the bar exam. I'm going to start working in November and, you know, midterm, long-term, my goal is to get into to local politics here in my community, here in my city. Man, congratulations, man. Like, I'm so proud of y'all. It's it's crazy to me and it's humbling. I, sometimes I forget how far we've come. When I was coming mm-hmm. up in the South, I didn't know any black people at the Naval Academy. I had never seen mm-hmm. a black midshipman. I didn't even know Harvard or these places. I didn't know what they were. I didn't know they were Ivy Leagues. I didn't know anything about them. And like fast forward to this day, man, I look at my phone. I got people at Columbia. I got people at Harvard. I got people at all these different places, like the best law schools and business schools in the world. And I know black and brown people there. And I think it's just it's just super um, humbling, I think, to know, because there was a time where it was like when you're coming up and you want to go to these places, you didn't know anybody there. And now we have like a squad of people. Right. It, it is crazy. It's humbling. It's it's something I have to reflect on and to appreciate, like you said, how far we've come and, and the people I've been able to meet and really just how fortunate I am to be where I am and to, to recognize the privilege and the, the advantages that, you know, my parents gave me to allow me to be able to to do what I've done in my life. Yeah. One of the reasons I wanted to bring you on the pot on the platform, Nate, is because, man, I'll be honest with you, when we first met, I had no idea how smart you were. I think it was just, it came out of like a passive conversation because Nate was like, you know, he was a boxer, you know what I mean? He was tall, lanky, a little chubby, had a little baby fat on him. But, you That's know, I, I was the man in the boxing ring, right? That was my space, right? I owned boxing. Academically at the Naval Academy wasn't my strong suit. But I remember one day, man, we're up there, I'm up there with Nate and I was like, oh yeah, what are you majoring in? He's like, yeah, I'm a triple major in like poli-sci economics and something else. I was like, what? You know, and for those of you out there that are not familiar with like Annapolis and Naval Academy, that's a very hard school for just one major, let alone, were you double or triple? I was a double major. 
but double major and being an athlete. And not only that, man, he was like, you had like a 4.0, right? Yeah, right? yeah I, was, I was right up there, pretty close. He's a boy genius. You know what I mean? You know those <laughs> people that are just super smart? They got, he's one of them. And I, that's one thing I do appreciate about Annapolis, whether black or white, it doesn't matter. I had never really been exposed to people like that before. You know, and that's one thing I appreciate mm. about that experience is just like, man, seeing people smarter than the professors. You know, right. <laughs> like the professor puts something on the board and the midshipman raises his hands like, sir, that's the wrong answer. <laughs> I had never, you know, when you go up in the South, you don't really see that, right? You see people in these authority right. positions, you never see them challenged on intellect. Oh, you know, yeah, that would you, be unacceptable. That'd be disrespect, low key, to challenge that authority. Yeah, you usually see them challenged more just like discipline wise. Like, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that. But to see them correct a professor, I didn't even know that that was possible. And that started to change. That changed in my head that, like, yo, the authority figures aren't necessarily always right. 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 You know? Right. So you just that's, assume because they're there that, they, that that's the right answer. Yeah, I think that's an important lesson to learn. And, you know, that mindset of challenging, you know, what is, what society says should be, uh, laws, who's in power, uh, that's a good mindset to have. I think when you grow up, uh, especially when you're a child, you're just taught to accept and you're taught to respect what is uh, and not to challenge it or otherwise you're being disrespectful and uh, especially in the South, you're going to get uh, at least a stern talking to for disrespecting, you know, authority or the hierarchy or what is. Uh, and I think it's important to, uh, or it has been important for me to grow out of that and to to start to challenge what's around and to start to, you know, shake things up as much as I can. I'll tell you, as a civilian, one thing I do miss is being around high performers. And I, it's funny, I say that and people are like, Mike, what are you talking about? You are a high performer. But again, it's going back to some of the stuff I talk about in, you know, the Always Faithful series. I was never actually made to feel like that at times until mm. I kind of stepped out into the entrepreneur space. So I'm always talking about other people. And then they remind me, they're like, Mike, you're just talking about yourself, you know? And so yeah. I'm having to learn to kind of deal with that and get used to that. Because, you know, when you're at the Naval Academy, man, you get the Navy SEAL 4.0, mm. mm. scholar. you're just like, God, my man's just getting it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know? it's always someone better. Yeah, man. Yeah, so, I agree. Uh, so, no, go ahead. What were you going to say, Nate? I was going to say, yeah, I think in the military, uh, you know, the culture is one where you're not supposed to talk about your own accomplishments, your own successes, your own, you know, coolness, greatness, what you bring to the table. It's, it's supposed to be focused on everyone else. And I think that's supposed to promote a, a selfless, you know, team-oriented attitude. And I think that works to some degree. But I also think one of the ways it left uh, one of the ways it left an impression on me is just like you said, I didn't have a very high opinion of myself or my skills or my talents when I when I left the military. And I've sort of just had to reflect a little bit and say, you know, uh, I do, you know, uh, bring value to the table where, you know, and I do have something to say and I'm going to say it uh, and we can we can move the ball forward just by being more active in the conversation. Yeah, man. So, Nate. I'm excited to dive deep and hear your story, hear your upbringing, what it's like to be young, black, and educated. You know, I know, I, I know that's a, a sensitive subject in the community because for a lot of us, and I don't know about your experience, but when I was growing up, if you were smart and you talked a certain way, people said you act like a white boy or mm. you talk like a white boy. Or like when you were in class, it was almost like you weren't. Uh, I know in my high school, it was like if you were doing the right thing for some reason, it was kind of looked down upon negatively. And mm. what I seen happen though as we evolve is that 
young black people that are talented uh, mentally, right? And mm-hmm. academically, um, because of those experiences when they're younger, they can be very traumatic for them. And I've noticed that sometimes people, like once they escape those environments, they never go back. You know what I mean? And they'll just kind of flip and just kind of bash black people and just say this, that, and the third. But I'm always amazed that like some of us who can have social maturity and we can look back at that experience and not that let that us push us away from our culture and our community. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see the same thing in you. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Uh, so I, I, was, I saw some of that growing up uh, but to be honest, you know, I grew up in an all black neighborhood in Southwest Atlanta. I didn't feel like I was an outcast because I was getting good grades. I, I, I felt like I wasn't a cool kid by no means. I, I wasn't popular and I definitely felt some type of way about that. But I didn't feel like like nobody would talk to me or, you know, people wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't pick me on the playground. Uh, what I did feel like specifically in the neighborhood, the street where I grew up on was this attitude that, you know, Nate, Nate's going to be the one of us to make it out. You know what I mean? So when people was doing what they do, you know, involved in whatever they was involved in um, to make ends meet, I, I felt like uh, I, I wasn't, you know, even going to get brought into that circle. You know what I mean? It was kind of like, no, we got to keep Nate to the side. Nate's going to make it out. And, the, and the, I appreciate that. The problem I have with that is, why can't we all make it out? You know what I mean? That mindset that there's just that one who's special, that one who, because he gets good grades and he does good on whatever standardized tests our government is putting out, he's going to be the one to make it out. And I just, one of the reasons I came back to the community is I want to challenge that. And I want to, uh, you know, plant the seeds that's going to lead to a change in culture that we all can make it out. And we don't actually have to make it out. Let's make the community better right here, right now so that we can stay right here and we can all be successful and we can all thrive. Exactly. And that's where I'm at too, man. I have this idea, like, I don't want to be the only one on the mountaintop. That's not my goal, man. I want to be standing up there with brothers and sisters and we all, you know, uh, the only way we're going to do it is, you know, we need leaders. We got people that go back and create platforms and pathways to get us there. And so that's why I'm excited to have you on and we're going to do a little deeper dive. But before we do that, we got to go ahead and give our confessions for the day. All right. I'll I'll go ahead and get started for y'all out there. I will tell you as a African-American Naval Academy graduate, it was built into me early on that when you grad, when you left the military, you were supposed to go to a top 10 business school. That was just what, that's what it was. If it wasn't Harvard, Columbia, uh, University of Chicago, Booth, you know, Warden, all these different names. See, I can say the names of these schools, right? Because it was just built into us. And so when I was transitioning out the military, people were like, yo, if you ain't going to a top 10 business school, you ain't shit, right? That's just what it was. It was kind of like understood. And I will tell you, I did not apply to those schools. One reason began, to be honest, it wasn't really me, right? Mm -hmm. I will also be self-wearing acknowledge the sense that like, it was really, really hard for me to get into the Naval Academy. Had to take the SAT like six times, had to deal with rejection, had to go to a prep school. I mean, I had to fight and claw tooth and nail to get to the Naval Academy. And I didn't know if I had that fight in me again to try mm-hmm. to go to one of these schools because I knew what I would have had to do. Would've, I knew what I would have had to done. Like I didn't have a strong math score. So I probably would have had right. to go to community college. I would have had to done some of that stuff. Like I mentally, I laid out a pathway, say, if I were to do this, what would need to happen? But I didn't mm-hmm. have that fight in me. I didn't mm-hmm. have the fight to go through that entire process and still potentially not get in, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's called 
upper limit problem. Sometimes, you know, it's like you can lie to everyone else, but you can never lie to yourself. And sometimes people don't put themselves in positions because they're fed. They're scared to fail deep down. So they don't get excited about stuff. They don't try to put themselves out there. They just kind of sit. And I think with me in terms of like the Harvards and all these different places, that was me because people hit me up all the time. They're like, Mike, you should go here. You should go there. Uh, now I'm kind of past that phase in my life, but I can't mm-hmm. acknowledge back then there was a little bit of doubt. That makes sense. I, you know, I really appreciate you sharing that. I think that is a problem or that feeling is it, it's experienced by a lot of black people. And I think it comes from growing up in a society uh, where you don't know a lot of people uh, who went to Harvard. You don't know a lot of people who go to these, you know, elite institutions. And so there's no one to show you the way there's there aren't that many people that are going to tell you you can do it. And I think a lot of people are left feeling that way. Uh, And that that actually ties into my confession. My confession is that I uh, I didn't get into Harvard the first time I applied. Uh, I applied. I don't even know if you noticed, Mike. I applied when I was at the Naval Academy. I applied to Harvard Business School, uh, and I got rejected. And I got into a, another business school that was still a pretty good business school. And, and the reason I didn't go is someone, a mentor to me, uh, you know him, Jake Zwig, said, "No, don't go there. You can get into Harvard." Uh, he said it obviously, you know Jake, a lot more colorfully and with a lot more language. But he said it, and he told me what I could do. Uh, and he convinced me and he convinced me to believe in myself. And so I put it, you know, on, on hold for shoot, man, five, six, seven years before I applied again, this time to law school and I was successful, but I reflect on that. And I think back, what if he had never just had that little short two minute conversation with me, tell me what I can do. And I, I think even bigger about how many young black men and women don't have that somewhere in their life who's saying that to them and, and convincing them to believe in themselves um, against, not even against all the odds, but just period. And I think it's, it's important. It's been important to me. And I think it would be important to our, to our whole culture, our whole, our whole community. Man, I'll tell you, man, there's only one Jake Zwig. Like the yeah. older I get, the more and more I appreciate that man. And I'm getting him on this podcast to interview him. Um, oh, because that's, that title of mentorship. And I mean, even for me, man, he used to tell me, he's like, Mike, you're a three-time national champ. Why are you taking that from people? You're a three-time national champ. You know, and it's weird when people see stuff within, you don't even see within yourself. Right. You gotta right. always be reminded. And so even when friends start pushing you, like, Mike, you this, you that. Sometimes it's like, gets annoying, not annoying, but you feel like, man, let it go, man, I ain't going. But all it is, is they really see your greatness as mm. well. Like they can appreciate it from the outside more than you can appreciate it, uh, you know, living it. Yeah. And you bring up a lot of good points, man. I'm excited to do a deep dive in them. But before we do that, we got to give a shout out to our sponsors. First, we got to give a shout out to Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. Next, we got to give a shout out to my brand, the one and only Ironbound Boxing, a fitness brand that utilizes the wellness benefits of boxing to transform com- communities, individuals, and corporate teams, helping them thrive and realize their fullest potential. Proceeds from our services fund free amateur boxing programs, entrepreneurial education, and employment opportunities for Newark youth and young adults. Shout out to Dope Coffee and Ironbound Boxing, two badass brands started by African-American Marine officers were for the culture. Shout out to our super fans out there listening to this show while rocking an Ironbound boxing hoodie. 
sipping some dope coffee with their minds open, ready to learn and ready to get educated, man. We appreciate y'all out there and we appreciate you for tagging us on social media, reaching out to us and letting us know what you think about each episode. All right, Nate, the theme of today's show is black and educated. And uh, I think you, I think that has a lot of time with you. And uh, I want to get us started by one, talk to us about being young, black and educated. You brought up a good point in the intro where you mentioned Atlanta and how like Atlanta is like a chocolate city. So, you know, there's just a lot going on in Atlanta, man. I feel like when I was in the South, man, they they used to call Atlanta the Mecca. (laughs) Um, Until I moved to Newark, I never experienced just like a black city. And back to stuff you were saying before about like when in Texas, man, if you were smart, it felt like you were isolated. Now, there was like 10 black guys in my class that went to college and I know all of them my high school class, but to come to a community in a city, it's just like, it's being smart and educated, especially as a black person is not the exception anymore. Mm-hmm. It's more like the norm. Now you all have your, you know, certain levels and whatnot, but I just feel more sense of community. I feel like I can be myself here in mm-hmm. York. I imagine that's what it was like for you growing up in Atlanta. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the things that was really powerful uh, for me about living in Atlanta is that you can walk through downtown midtown. You can walk through the, you know, the financial district. You can, you can walk through where business is being done and you see black people in suits walking around, you know, you see black people in suits going into the, going into the skyscrapers, going into the high rises. Cause that's where they live. And I haven't experienced that in a lot of other cities. And, and honestly, I took it for granted when I was growing up in Atlanta, but I think it did something to me. It showed me that that isn't out of reach for me as a young black man. When I, I see black people uh, wearing suits or I see black people, you know, doing business, being lawyers, being doctors, I, I knew it was possible for me just because I have that example. And when I've been to some other American cities, I, I just think about, Oh, the black men, the young black boys and black girls here, they don't have that example. And I imagine that that has an impact on uh, their outcomes and an impact impact on what they believe about themselves and what they can achieve. And I I think it just raises the price of of admission for them a little bit because they have a a little bit of a bigger obstacle to get over, you know, to, to achieve that dream and achieve that goal. Absolutely. So when you were growing up, man, did you know you were different in school? Did you know that things were coming to you a little bit easier than your your peers and classmates? I mean, when did you realize that you were smart? Honestly, honestly, I think at some point in elementary school, uh, my second confession is I didn't test into the gifted program at first. Uh, So I, whatever the test that whoever made that decides whether or not you're intelligent, you know, seven or eight year old Nate Jester failed that test and was deemed a regular, you know, regular student. Uh, and then my parent, one of my parents was like, nah, they wrong. Take it again next year and take it again. And so I, I took it until I was gifted and then I was in the gifted program. Uh, and I think I received, you know, just validation from getting good grades. It was the way I got, you know, good at the positive attention from my parents. I got positive attention from the teachers. And so it was reinforced that way. Uh, but I also look at that first barrier of passing that gifted test and what that meant as far as now I just got a little bit more attention, uh, actually more than a little bit more attention than the other students. And I got affirmed more for my good behavior than for the students that uh, did not have that 
that did, that did not pass that that test. Um, so yeah, I would I would say it's very young, um, and it was something that I kept up in middle school and high school because I saw it as a way to uh, be rewarded. I saw it as a way to to do good things. And this is before I ever heard of the Naval Academy and before I knew anyone who went to Harvard. I just thought this is how I can be rewarded. And that's why I started getting good grades. Where do you think you got that from? Uh, the 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 desire to to get good grades, like the that just the that intellect, the fact mm-hmm. that you're good at school. Because I know for a lot of young, just be quite frank, black boys in school, sitting down in a classroom all day, mm-hmm. every day fighting that fight, you know, eight hours, we don't have the strongest track record in the public education Mm -hmm. system, Mm -hmm. you know? And in the South, man, it was almost since like, you were almost viewed as like a problem, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Right. But for you, that was like an environment you could thrive in, you know, get a book, sit down, be very disciplined. And I know a lot of, not conservative people, but, you know, people find somebody like you and they're like, if Nate Jester can do it, everybody can do it, you know? Mm -hmm. They say, oh, he had good parents at home and blah, 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 uh, which might be true as well. Yeah. Um, I'm just curious to learn, you know, where you got that discipline from to thrive mm-hmm. in an academic environment. So I'm going to talk about two things that I think are important that, you know, allow me to thrive, as you said. Uh, one is my parents. So I, I think I did have a stable home and I had parents that cared about my grades. But I also had parents that set an example as far as smarts go. So I, I remember like some of my first memories are my parents reading. And I can remember that when they, you know, came home from work, they both worked when I was growing up. Uh, my mom was always in a book, always in, you know, some Stephen King or some sci-fi. It didn't matter. She was, she was reading. And that's what, how they would spend most of their time. Uh, and then my father, uh, he would come home and he'd be the same thing. He, he's reading. And I think that, you know, before you even understand that reading is supposed to make you smart or reading is, is good, I think you look at your parents' example and you're like, if they're doing that, I should be doing that. Uh, on top of that, they set some rules that really just made grades and doing well in school the focus. Uh, I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't play video games all day. Couldn't play outside all day. Uh, I had to I had to do my homework. And they made, they made academics a priority in a way where I didn't feel like I, I had a choice. I, and once I, you know, fulfill those expectations, I would get rewarded. And so I think that positive reinforcement, that rule setting, that allowed me to be successful from the, from the home front perspective. The other thing I'll say is, you know, I went to public school. Uh, I went to all black schools. And, you know, I, I tell people I had maybe a handful of white teachers in my life going through, going all the way up through high school. And uh, I didn't not, I did not know any white peers, like people my age. I did not know any white people my age growing up in Southwest Atlanta. But going to that all-Black school, I had Black teachers who cared about seeing Black people be successful. And I think, you know, through, you know, through the gifted test and just through being able to perform well, those teachers saw me and said, he can, I actually think it's sort of the same mentality. He can make it out. He can, he can go farther. And they made a decision right then to give me more attention and to give me more positive reinforcement and to give me more resources that allowed me to be successful throughout my career. Uh, I think it was fortunate that it worked out that way for me. I don't think it works out that way for everyone. I think if you aren't identified as that as that successful student, I think you you might get left by the wayside. You might get left on the side of the road as the school system moves on from you. 
and as as people move on, and that's not to say teachers don't try. That's not to say teachers aren't aren't putting all their energy. I, I think they are. I think they're the backbone of this country, and they deserve to be paid more. Uh, but I think sometimes it can just work out from for some of us. And so I don't want to be held up as you know the example as you know Nate made it. Anyone can make it. No, I think I had that perfect storm, that perfect mix of circumstances that allowed me to be successful. The point should be how do we give everyone those circumstances, give everyone the opportunity that 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 had that I had, and I think that requires some changes to our system. I'll tell you, um, and I talked about this on another podcast, but part of being, uh, you know, I do a lot of, I got, I'm a hustler, right? I got a lot of different ventures I work on, and so part of that, I get to attend great leadership conferences for my clients mm-hmm. to access some of their training. And one of the things I've become a big fan of is uh, assessments, right? Mm. Professional assessments. I just took mm. something called the, I've taken the Colby Index and Cultural Index. And it mm. basically lets me know how somebody can employ me the best, right? Mm. Like I bottom out at conformity. I'm, I score really high on autonomy. I score okay. really high on social da- adaptability. But like processes and systems, I'm probably about like mm. a four or five, which mm. means I can bring somebody on to kind of help me do that stuff. Because okay. when my mind works, I bounce around. So it's like mm. it's very hard for me to do one. Th- if I just do one thing, I will not perform. If I do three mm. things, it lifts everything. It's like a rising tide lifts all boats. It's not like that for everybody, but it's like that for me. Yeah. And the reason I say that, because as I become aware about these indexes and how people learn mm. different and have to be employed different, I think about a lot of young black and brown kids in the public education system who are not getting educated to meet their needs. Mm. it's more of the needs of the system and less uh-huh. the needs of the student. Right. It's like a, a, a one size fits all type situation. And when it doesn't fit, you're punished, you know, and when it doesn't fit, we care less about you and you're a slacker or you're lazy. And, uh, it, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's just a tough problem. It's a tough problem to solve, but I think it's one that we got to you know address head on. And when you're young, you're like an eight-year-old in school, and it's just it's hard for you to sit down. You can't explain mm-hmm. it. You no, know, mm-hmm. it's hard for you to focus. You just it's it's this thing that's there, and their teacher's not understanding, and she's punishing you for it. Mm-hmm. And what we end up doing is we suck their confidence away early on. Mm, that's so that's so true. That's so crucial, and that, that changes people's outcomes because you spend so much of your waking life as a child in a classroom that what you are taught there and what's reinforced there is obviously going to impact like who you are as a person and the way you act, you know, once you get out of school. And so when we're punishing people for being themselves or when we're applying that one, whether, you know, one size fits all solution, uh, I think we are, uh, handicapping people or, or, uh, you know, creating an obstacle that people are going to have to, to overcome if they want to get where they want to get in their lives. Yeah, you're sucking their confidence away all right. every day. Mm, every cell right. test, every day. They're like, I can't win. Dang. Right. Play sports, you know? They right. get a little validation. People tell them they're good. But I always say, man, you know, there are a lot of black people out there that there's only how many spots on a basketball team? How many spots on a football mm-hmm. You know? And if you're not getting told how great you are or that you're somebody, you know, in school and made to feel less than over and over and over again, you know, we got a lot of black and brown people out there that just don't have confidence. I agree. I agree. I think in many ways and in a lot of places, the school system does do that to us. And we, you know, we, we tie like our, 
a person's individual value to how good their grades are, how good their test scores are. And so it makes sense why people look for validation on the basketball court. They look for validation on the football field. But uh, I think, you know, human beings and individuals are more than, you know, their test scores. They're, they're more than their performance on the basketball court. And so I think we just have to, to drop the one size fits all model. We have to take a more holistic approach to developing our youth because they are literally the future, literally our future. So let me ask you this. While you were at, you know, an all black high school, all black schools, mm -hmm. was the text, did you find the text and the t subject material you studied reflective of you as a being, you know, like what kind of books were y'all reading? And, and mm -hmm. cause I know like when I was in AP classes and my mom was a principal at my high school, that was the only reason I got an AP class. She was like, my baby is getting in this class, right? They didn't want to put mm -hmm. me in there, but <laughs> I went to the Naval Academy that I had to get those classes on my transcript, but sitting mm -hmm. in those classes reading, you know, Tessa Durbervilles, oh <laughs> The Awakening, right. Little Women. You know, I'm like, man, I'm a right. young, I never met my dad. I'm sitting here reading these texts. Like, it was never going to happen. Mm -hmm. I never read them. You know, mm -hmm. and I wonder how many, and I had a mom who was an educator. If you don't have that, like, what kind of, they, these kids, man, they don't see themselves reflected in this text. I fundamentally believe that. I think that's true. And even growing up in a black school system, you're going to see that to some degree. You know, the required reading was, I mean, at some point, somebody decided that these, you know, American authors, uh, primarily white authors, that their literature is the standard. And this is what children need to learn in order to be, I don't know, indoctrinated into how we read and appreciate literature. So, you know, reading Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, I couldn't tell you anything about those books, uh, and I don't really remember, but I can remember thinking this seems so foreign. And this seems so different. Uh, and it's not that I, I couldn't read it. I could read it. But I can imagine that for a lot of people, that's going to be a turnoff. And it's going to be harder to engage with that, especially when you're reading it uh, when you're younger. Because our human brains, we're trying to survive and thrive. That's what we do every right. day. Reading that text, that, that young boy is looking at this text saying, how's this helping me win the day? You know, my right. mom's at home. I got to take care of my, my little sisters and cousins. You know, right. why am I sitting in class reading Victorian literature, you know? Um, yeah. And I think that one of the things we have to do as a community, whether right or wrong, right? I just don't think traditional education is reflective of us. But I try to have this argument with people that don't understand. A lot of black and brown people have not equated education to winning yet. Mm. You know, like guaranteed. Mm. Some of us do. Some of us make that connection. But you ever try to interact with someone that's just plunge themselves far outside mm -hmm. of like society. They, there's no selling them on going back to college. There's no selling mm -hmm. them on that because they just don't see that as winning or helping them survive the day. Right. I, I think that, I think they are reasonable to feel that way. And I think that is, is a, a rational decision, especially if circling back to what we were talking about earlier. If your confidence has been sucked out, you know, day after day, year after year, test after test, uh, it would make sense to when someone says you should go back to school, someone to respond, why would I do that? Um, and I also think we're talking about, you know, how people produce better outcomes for themselves. I think it's reasonable to say four years at a college and hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's not a good, that doesn't sound like a good investment to me. Uh, and I think if you look at the numbers, you know, you might see some income grow. But I, I think it's reasonable to say I don't want to do four years and, and spend a hundred thousand dollars. I don't got it. Uh, and then to to 
you know, adjust your life that way. And so I think this goes back to exactly what we're talking about. We have to find a way to reach people uh, early. You know, I, I think it should be pre-K, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying as early as possible, elementary school, we need to be, uh, you know, addressing people's individual needs and sort of applying some of those things you were talking about with that assessment, uh, figuring out what people thrive in and how we can better reach them and teach them. I think what we can both agree on what is currently out there just is not working. Like that's mm. what I started this podcast for. Like you can't argue this with me, man. Whatever <laughs> input you're putting it into the system is leading to mass incarceration of black and brown mm. people, like low test scores, like all this stuff, man. And it's nation. It's not just here in Newark. Go to Detroit. Mm. You know, go to Texas. You see this kind of same trend, and it goes back to what you say. Even in Atlanta, oh, he's different. He's gonna mm-hmm. make. It. Right? Why can't we move together as a community? And I think a right. lot of the systems that are set in place, they just don't benefit us. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's important to realize that some of those uh, some of those systems were designed that way. And so not only are you fighting against a system that is, you know, uh, just happens to not work out for you. No, you're fighting against a system that was purposefully made to punish your blackness, to put your blackness in jail, uh, and to limit the, the positive outcomes for you uh, so that somebody else could benefit, so that someone else could profit. And that's, uh, that's painful, but I think we got to address that, and then we have to figure out a way to overcome it and continue to fight to overcome it. So take us up to speed about you going to Annapolis, right? You're young, black, and educated. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't wait first to do that. And you said you weren't popular because of it, and you felt some kind of way? Okay, I, I don't. I think I wasn't popular because I didn't have the sort of self confidence that I think popular people have. You know, popular people they just have that swag and they draw people to them, and they're the life of the party. I have since learned, uh, as I've grown up, that a lot of times that 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 confidence is a facade or it's a defense mechanism. But I didn't know that when I was growing up. I, I thought they were they literally were that confident and they were that cool. And I wanted to be like that. I don't know if it was because I was smart. I really think it was because I didn't have that confidence in my personality. And actually there came a time where I think I stopped trying to be that person, be that popular outgoing person. And I was like, you know, let me get on these grades because that's where I'm going to get validated. And that's how I get, to, you know, my name called out is by getting good grades. And so I really, I really dove deep into that. And I think it, I mean, it worked out for me, but, um, but, but yeah, I don't know where else to go with that. But yeah, I, I think it, uh, it was important. Me, me and Nate both me and Nate both got swag now. Nate got swag, man. He confident. I'm confident. It's crazy how you kind of catch it later in life, right? You catch, because I, you have it to was build it for me. It was later for me. It was later for yeah, me. Yeah, you got to build that confidence over time. Again, because I, I wasn't a star athlete in high school, man. And, mm-hmm. you know, when I, like, once I started boxing, came national champ, I was like, okay, there's a little something there, but mm-hmm. it's still fine. It really wasn't until after the Marine Corps, to be honest, and I started uh, entrepreneurship and all that kind of stuff. That's where I really found my confidence. But uh, this is about you saying about me. Uh, so I want to I want to get us up to uh, the Naval Academy. All right, mm-hmm. You're from Atlanta, you got all these HBCUs around you, young, black, and educated. What made you go to the military? What made you go to Annapolis and not mm-hmm. take advantage of an HBCU? Because I'll tell you, we had this conversation when you first jumped on. I think one of the things we have to discuss as a community is uh, cultural suicide. And what I mean by that is, I mean, like, you know, a lot of us go to these elite institutions and we're like, man, our, our blackness is not getting nurtured. 
Mm. You know I mean, it's not really getting developed here. We're not talking black history. People aren't educating us, but we're also voluntarily going to these places that we kind of know ahead of time that aren't really, don't really do that. And so how do you, you know, what led you to Annapolis and not these other schools? And then I want to expand upon that once we get to Harvard. Absolutely. So first off, you know, shout out to HBCUs. I love HBCUs. Both of my parents went to HBCUs. Uh, my sister went to HBCU. Uh, you know, they are important to my family. And we're talking about young, black, and educated. And I think for a lot of black people, uh, HBCUs are the way you become young, black, and educated. So they have my utmost appreciation. When I was, you know, 16, 17 year old, and they making the decision on where I wanted to go to school. Uh, first off, I had never heard of the Naval Academy. Uh, my dad was a Marine. I told him I wanted to be a Marine like you, Dad. And he said, uh, it's where he told me, don't enlist. Go become an officer. He said the entire time he was in the service, he saw in person zero black officers. And he said, you could be an example for some young black sergeant like me. Like you, you can be that example. And you can live that example. And you can inspire somebody just by being present. Uh, and so he told me about the Naval Academy and I, I looked into it. And I, I think as a young man, I was looking to challenge myself. And, you know, frankly, we're talking about confessions. I was I was looking to validate my manhood, my manliness by joining the military and taking on this this violent profession, because at that time I associated being violent with you know, being more manly. And there's a lot of problems with that thought. I have since moved away from that, you know, um, that idea. But that is definitely what I thought when I was 17 or 18. I was like, I'm going to go, I'm going to put on a uniform and I'm going to be hard. I'm going to be tough. I'm going to be manly. And that was really important to me as a young man. Um, and that's what, that's what led me to the military. Honestly, I think that's what led me to the Marine Corps as opposed to the Navy. You know, coming out of the Naval Academy, you can either go to the Marines or the Navy. And for me, I was like, which one goes harder? Oh, everyone says the Marines go hard. I, I'm going to be on that side. And then when I got in the Marines, oh, what what job should I do? Uh, Stedman went infantry. He told me it's dope. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say it was dope. I did not say it was dope. I was hiding. Uh, I was hiding. I was on team structure. <laughs> That's like Mike House Infantry. It's good, it's good, man. Y'all, y'all good, man. Then I then all y'all start coming in the infantry after me. I was like, right. I was showing no love. I wasn't responding to text messages. That's real. Oh, you did at real, you did at real <laughs> Man, I was going through it, man. Y'all don't even know, man. I was in the hustle, oh, man. man. It I was, was tough. <laughs> it was tough. It was tough. And I think I was looking for sort of that same thing, that same validation of my manliness by choosing a career that is difficult and hard. And, you know, burnisome. And that was going to lead to me being in, you know, conflict or lead to me being in violent situations. Did you have any issues at Annapolis? Any issues? Uh, it was a, it was a culture shock, man. It was a culture shock. I told you I didn't know. I, I did not know white people my age. And that was my first time. So the so to go to Annapolis and to talk different than everyone else and I mean, we couldn't even wear civilian clothes that first year, but I already knew I didn't dress like, you know, the people in Annapolis and that was confirmed once we actually could put on our civilian clothes. And so it was an adjustment for me. And to be honest, I felt like I really stood out there and I felt like I was really, really different. And I was very uncomfortable and I felt like I needed to do something about that. I, sw I swear I tried my best to eliminate my Southern accent. I was like, this has got to go. I got to stop saying shawty. I got to stop saying bruh. I got to like 
talk the way everyone else is talking so that I can be completely accepted. Um, and, and I did do that. I, 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 the things I even talked about, I changed the things I talked about. Uh, I changed like some of the music that I listened to. And like, I was just trying everything I could to, to assimilate and adjust. Uh, and that is, you know, in many ways, unfortunate that I felt that I needed to do that. I think it's, it doesn't really benefit the military in any way, you know, if I don't have a Southern accent or line, it doesn't, certainly doesn't benefit me or the community or who we're supposed to be serving. And so I think, you know, it would have been better if I felt that I could be myself and, I, and you know, the myself who I was coming from Atlanta had value and that that value was important to add to this community and to make it more diverse and to make it more inclusive of people uh, outside of sameness, outside of, of unity and conformity and uniformity. Yeah, and that's why self-awareness is so important, man. And even, I, I say this all the time, man, Muhammad Ali, man who views the world at 50 the same way he did at 20, has wasted 30 years of his life. Mm-hmm. And I think we all kind of, when you go on, people don't understand, when you come from a black community, right, and then you go to a place like Annapolis, some of the other places, you are so isolated. You know, mm. you got to, how far you got to drive in Annapolis to go be around other black people? It ain't like, about 45 minutes. You got to go like, yeah, 45 minutes, if you're lucky. You know, mm-hmm. but when you're like a plebe, you got all these hustles. It's oh. just like, it's this, it almost feels kind of like suffocating. And I'll tell mm-hmm. you, when I, I don't know if you experienced this. Um, I went to prep school. Um, so I went to NAPS, which is our prep mm-hmm. school for a year. But even there, man, every time people saw me, they were like, you must be a football player. I'm like, no, nah, man, I just, I came to serve like everybody else. I want to be a Marine. And it was always said, like, even still, I mean, I'm pretty stocky now. People always assume that I was in Annapolis, that I was a football player. Before I laced up a pair of boxing gloves. I used to get yelled at by the cadre. Like, just because you play football doesn't mean... I'm like, sir, like, I don't play football. I don't play basketball. I'm just trying to be an officer. I, I had that exact same experience. And I have a specific story about an experience like that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a nerd and I was double majoring uh, or I was trying to double major and I was trying to take more classes than what the you know prescripted course load was. And so I... I can't remember if I sent an email or however uh, to my academic advisor. And she was like, no, come talk to me. If you have an issue, you can't take any more classes. And I go down there and I see her and I'm like, why can't I, you know, take a few more credits? Why can't I take one more class? I know, I know it's an option. I know some people can do it. There are people doing it. So what's wrong with me? And she, you know, really concerned, a little bit condescending, talking to me about, you know, whether I could handle it or not, whether I was smart enough. Uh, you know, whether I can manage my time, whether I was organized enough. Uh, and I, I had to make her go into her computer and like look up my grades for her to believe that I could take one more class. And when she looked at my grades, then it was like, oh, OK, once again, I've been identified as different. Once again, I've been, you know, identified as someone who can make it and doors open for me that were previously closed. And uh, it's just that little bit more bit more effort. It's just that, you know, that, that bit more work that I had to do to open that door and to convince someone of my value. She could have looked at my grades before she ever emailed me. She could have looked at my grades before she said, no, she didn't because there was an assumption that was made. And I think that that same assumption is made about black people, uh, in this country regularly. And it just, it has an effect. Uh, and I don't mean that it's just black people. I don't think it's just made about black people. I think you can say it's made about women. I think that you can say that it's made about poor people in general. Uh, and it's made about all these different groups who we just think can't do it. 
And I think we have to recognize that that is a burden on them, that for everyone to think you can't do it is a burden on you. And you have to work that much harder just to overcome that burden before you can even get in the door, before you can even get that door open and walk through it. Yeah, I call it dumbing down your greatness. You know, people mm. try to dumb down dumb down your greatness. I experienced that as an entrepreneur, man. Until I open my mouth, people don't realize how my business acumen is. And I learned mm-hmm. it the hard, I've learned it the hard way, bootstrap. You know, it's like, oh, here's this guy, this nonprofit, whatever. Mm-hmm. We'll take a look. Then they see this. They're like, oh, this is really good. Let me see your mm-hmm. financial. Boom. Are you 501c? Yes. We're 501c3 registered. You have a for-profit? Mm-hmm. Yes. We have separate bank accounts. Yes. You know, like, they just, just the don't. Basics. And I will tell you this. Mm-hmm. Whenever I go somewhere, if I'm with a, and it works both ways to black and white people. If I'm with a white man and I go and I'm talking business entrepreneurship, somebody assumes he's in charge. Mm-hmm. In a white environment, in a black mm-hmm. environment, somebody assume he's the money man. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what are y'all talking about, man? It's me. I pay like fucking thousand dollars for business coaching and all this kind of stuff. It's my, it's me grinding yeah. away, right? There is no yeah. savior in the background, yeah. but I think programmed on the both sides of this sense mm-hmm. of like, you see a black dude in his greatness. The assumption is there's somebody behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You have to convince people. You just a little bit more. You have to work a little bit harder. And, and uh, yeah, go ahead. No, you first, man. Yeah. And I, you have to convince people, but you know, your white partner, he didn't at all. They believed it. As soon as he walked in the room, they believed it. And the price is just a little bit lower for him. And that's, I think that's what people are talking about with privilege. And I don't think it's a, taking away the effort you know, or the energy or the value that he brings. He, he brings value. Um, he or she, white person brings value is just saying the cost is a little bit less for you. I have to do a little bit more convincing. I have to show someone my grace to take one more class. You have to, you know, really prove and really talk through the basics of business to prove that you're the person that actually owns the business and to be given the floor to, to, to have a chance to speak. Uh, and that's, that's important. And it's okay to recognize that, I think. So take us to the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. particularly the infantry. Yeah. Okay, because I know okay. when you were in the Marines, there was this incident that happened at the schoolhouse, you know? Mm-hmm. And so somebody oh, yeah. dropped the N-word. We're going to say it. So yeah. Use the term sand nigger, an instructor. Yes. Yeah, you know the story. I do know the story. So why don't you talk yeah. to us about, you know, what the Marines, infantry, and, you know, that environment and that experience there, because I feel like that's amplified even more than the Naval Academy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, you go from that to this. And then I want to hear, you know, what you what you said about the stuff you weren't necessarily appreciated for in the military, like you were in the civilian world. Mm, OK, I, I think I think I got you. Uh, the Marine Corps was. Even wider than the Naval Academy, I think that's just facts. Uh, the Marine Corps was even more male dominated than the Naval Academy. I think that's just facts. Uh, and so I, I, when I went into that culture, I mean, the experiences were, I didn't feel like a stranger when I went to the Marine Corps, the way I did when I went to the Naval Academy, I felt like, you know, when I went into the Marines, I kind of learned the game a little bit. I know how to talk and I know how to act and I know how to be accepted as the token black person. And, uh, I, I played that game so that I could, I could succeed and get ahead, uh, in, in many ways, uh, that experience, I, I found it. I found it surprising. I, I I was shocked that somebody would do that. It was 2012, and I was like, you know, here is a captain, an O3 in the Marines, 
uh, in front of a classroom full of 100 people. Uh, and I think, I think we had eliminated all the women from the infantry school at that point. So it was, a, it was about a hundred men or, you know, 80 or so men. And for him to use that word, that, 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 that's displaying more than something about just him, because that's a, that's a smart person and that's a rational person. And so he has to be confident enough in his position and in his culture and in you know, it, with his power that he can say that word to a room full of 80 white dudes and two black men and nothing's going to happen. Uh, and he was right. He said that word to a room full of 80, 80 white men and two black dudes. And, and I mean, nothing happened. Business went on as usual. Uh, I took it. Uh, and I, I remember just thinking, wow, I mean, this is crazy. I, I've reflected on it a lot over the past few days, uh, the past few weeks. And I'm just thinking, why did he do that? You know, it was, it had nothing, obviously it has nothing to do with whatever tactics we were supposed to be learning, like using that word. Uh, it, it, was it a power play? Was he trying to signal something to me? Um, I don't believe it just slipped out. Uh, I think it was purposeful. Like you chose to use that word and you chose to use it twice, uh, in a, in a lesson to a, a room full of students. Uh, I think it was a, a power move and it was, it was telling me and my friend Philip Jones to stay in our place and don't ever think. Don't ever think that you own this. Like you can get here and maybe you'll get through this school. But at the end of the day, I can stand up here and say the N word twice. And uh, that's that's what this culture is. And that's what it signaled to me. And that made me uncomfortable. And that made me, you know, really doubt the choices that I made to my life to even bring me into an environment like that, that would treat me that way. Uh, and to risk my life for, you know, an organization that would, that would treat me that way. Uh, so it was... I don't know. It was crazy. But it, you know, that wasn't the only time that I heard that word when I was in the Marines, to be honest. Really? Where else did you hear it? I, I would hear from peers. Uh, when people would get upset, I, I've heard people use that word t- towards me. Uh, sometimes they almost act like they're joking or they'll say it. And then when you say, hey, we really about to throw hands right now. Now, oh, I was just playing. I didn't know it would be offensive. I didn't know we were taking things personally. That sort of, that, that narrative happened multiple times. Uh, the other narrative was when somebody would get frustrated uh, about whatever was going on. And then that's the word you choose to tear me down in order to say, you know, you made a mistake. You're, uh, you ought to be, uh, that is, that's betraying something about that individual. I think, uh, that that's that's how you really feel really deep down in your heart. And we can keep key and I can be the token black person. And honestly, we can go have some beers on a weekend and be cool. But if it ever comes to that point where it's time for you or you feel like you need to exert power over me, uh, then, then that word comes out uh, as a way to, to degrade me and to tear me down. And it's, it's, it's really disappointing that in, you know, when I was in the Marines, 2012 to 2017, that's still how some people in this country felt. It was really sad. It's really sad, actually. One of the things I learned in the Marine Corps is this idea of processes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's of like nothing just magically happens, right? Like if a Marine shows up drunk to formation, there's like a track record. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's just not something out the blue. And I have, can't help but think when that captain said sand nigger in front of you, that's that was a polite thing he said in front of y'all. You know, that is there's no way that that's the first time only he said it. You know what I mean? That's yeah, like, that's not his. That's not his first time in his life. What's being said when I'm being evaluated? 
what's being said in the boardroom where I'm being discussed and it's time for my, you know, performance grades to come out. You know, if, if that's how he feels. And once again, it's no reason to think that because he feels that way, everyone feels that way. But there is something to be said about the fact that he can just say it, that he can just say it in public with impunity and it's fine. Uh, and I just think about how that, how that might have affected me. Uh, and it's, one, it's, it's just something you don't know. And that uncertainty, uh, the doubt that that sows is, is stressful. And it's just a little bit, it's just a burden that gets places, placed, on, placed on your shoulders and it's something you got to carry uh, throughout your time that you're in that environment and afterwards, honestly. Did your peers say anything to you about it? Did they acknowledge it? Or was it just kind of? No, I, you know, no, multiple times. And, you know, there were multiple times when that word was used around me around or towards me. Uh, and I can only think of one time when someone said something and it, he just said, sorry. He said, sorry, you had to, sorry, that happened to you. Sorry, that person said that. That meant a lot to me. That meant a lot to me. Uh, to just have someone acknowledge that that was painful, to have someone validate what I was feeling. Uh, and I mean, shoot, we moved on past it, but we went on with our lives, but I really appreciated him. And to this day, I still appreciate that person who had the, who had the, you know, the compassion, the, the, the sympathy to just say, you know, that's bad. And that person needs some, some support and some uplift and to see me and to, and to validate me that way. It was important. You were in the military, you were in the Marine Corps when mm-hmm. 2014, 2015, Michael Brown, the Baltimore mm-hmm. riots, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Black oh, yeah. Lives Matter first came out. Mm-hmm. Now I was with our boy, Philip Jones. We were sitting at my computer mm-hmm. at the desk in the, mm-hmm. op- in the ops office. And uh, I just remember, man, the ops had walked out. And he was like, hey, and Marines were talking crazy about the rioters. They're like, we should go in there and kill them and shoot them all and Absolutely. You know, everything. And I just remember I was just like, yo, man, it's crazy. Yeah. And the officer walked up to us and he was like, hey, uh, it's a Caucasian male. Hey, uh, Captain Stedman and Lieutenant Jones, uh, you guys think about what's going on in Ferguson and the Baltimore riots. We're like, I looked at Pip. He looked at me. We're like, I said, we don't think anything, you know, because it wasn't a safe space. It's the appearance of a safe space, you know. And this, see, this podcast is a safe space. And what people mm-hmm. are finding out is they don't really know us, Nate. They think they know us because the power dynamic. We could never really be ourselves. So we play mm-hmm. the game, we're the token, we don't want to ruffle any feathers. But when they right. find out who we really are, it's like, damn, I didn't really know Nate. You know? Yeah. And yeah. and I can imagine that that makes them feel uncomfortable. You know what I mean? It might make you feel like, oh, wow, I've, I've been duped, I've been tricked, I've been lied to. And also, I, I imagine when you find out, you know, 2012 to 2017, Nate and the Marines. You know what? I, how I acted at work—that's not the real me. You realize that you weren't trusted completely, and you realize that I had to make a decision to not show you the real me in order to protect myself. And once again, that's just—that's just really sad. That's really sad. Survival tactics. Survival tactics. How did you feel when the whole Michael Brown and stuff was going on? I mean, who did you speak to about mm-hmm. that? That just outlet vetting the family and whatnot. Were your Marines? How was that whole experience as a leader? It was okay. I, I have to be honest. I didn't say anything to my Marines about it. Uh, what I actually learned is, you know, just in the office with some of the other officers, I realized that I was, you know, on an island, that I was the only one who felt like this was terrible and this was wrong and this was unfortunate. And I felt like I had great arguments for why, you know, everyone else in this office is wrong or why, you know, not even everyone, the people who were running their mouth the most were wrong. 
um, and why what they're talking about literally, you know, is, is divorced from like their own values that they preach day in and day out or their own logic and their, their feelings about rules and fairness. I'm like, you, you're just, you're on the wrong side of this and it's because you're biased. And I don't know if there's anyone who can tell you, uh, or anyone who is going to tell you, cause I'm not going to do it and I'm not going to risk my career. I'm not going to risk my, uh, you know, my future. Um, in that way at least i didn't feel that way at the time i my only outlet was you know family and friends but to be honest i even felt divorced for them uh because i was in the military and i was in california at the time so i'm thousands of miles away from home so even just that that distance yeah we got text and yes only a second away but that actual physical distance for me made me feel more isolated and you know i was single at the time so i was really just i was really just in my apartment feeling some type of way uh, and i didn't really have a way to express it. And I think my defense mechanism, once again, was like, you know, bottle that up. There's a job to be done and go out there and do it. So it's safe to say you were lonely in the Marine Corps. I felt, I felt very lonely in the Marine Corps. I did. And I've I've heard you talk about it before on this, on this, on this podcast. Uh, It is validating to hear that other people felt that way. Uh, Cause I I felt that way to a large degree. And you know, on on one hand, it's kind of, it's sad because I do have friends in the Marine Corps and I do have you know, strong or, you know, really positive relationships with white people that I've taken with me, even after I've gotten out of the Marine Corps. And, you know, I think at some level for me to say I was lonely has to undermine those relationships, but this is safe space and we're here doing confessions. And that's honestly how I felt. I know when I came out with Always Faithful Part One, I had a lot of people call me and they're like, Mike, stop going on your podcast saying you're incompetent. (laughs) Mike, what do you mean you were lonely? We were there the entire time. And I'm like, I, I, it's just hard for me. You're right. They do feel some kind of way sometimes. They're like, why didn't you reach out to us? Mm-hmm. Why didn't you call us? Why didn't you do this? It's like, you don't understand. I can't describe it. You know, this pressure to be like, you know, mm-hmm. in Europe, I mean, let's say this, right, man. I really look up to like you and, you know, Pip and how y'all perform and how y'all kick ass and took names in the Marines. Mm-hmm. Like, team struggle bus. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was, I was really, I was struggling. I was struggling hard. You know, who do you, vent to about that, you know, mm. talk to about that, you know, and I say that because for everyone that's like a pip, you know, there's going to be somebody like me that struggles, you know? Right. And we right. don't feel as, I mean, it, when you're a black guy and you're struggling performance wise, man, it's really, really hard in that environment. It is really, really hard. And the pressure to just be the best and the pressure that you're ruining it for everyone that's going to come from behind you, you know, it's, it's not possible for every single person to live up to that extremely high mm-hmm. expectation. And I think, you know, white guys, right. When you go in 50 deep, you know, <laughs> you got better eyes. We're like two, you know, so I look <laughs> at most, at, at most, most, you at know? Most. So I look at you, I look at me and it's like, yo man, our, the odds are not in our favor is all I'm going to say about that. It was tough. It was tough. It just, it just cost us much more to, to be better. And it was, it was a burden, man. It was something you had to, you had to carry around and you had to push through in order to, to try to be successful. And I also think, you know, something you mentioned that's important is the thought that the idea that as a black person, as a minority person, honestly, as a woman in the military, you have to be excellent. Like wherever the standard is, that's not your standard. Your standard is excellence. And you have to meet that to just to be, you know, good enough to be in the room. And I think a lot of, you know, black people, brown people and women feel that way in the military. 
Uh, and I think it's, it's a, once again, it's just, it's just a burden. It's something you have to deal with. It's something you have to overcome. It's stress a stressor. And uh, that, that's going to affect people. And that's going to affect, you know, who wants to stay in an environment like that. That's going to affect who does decide, you know, to, to, to get out and move on and what they decide to do. And I think it's something you're going to carry with you even once you leave the military. So, Nate. Yeah. I've seen you, you know, post Marine Corps, right? And yeah. honestly, man, like, let me say this. How you are, your swag. I even felt like you had that at the academy, you know? Oh, I appreciate the it. military is like very conservative environment. Mm-hmm. Now you kind of stepping out into your own. I see you mm-hmm. rocking the Black Lives Matter shirt. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very pro-black, educated. You know, mm-hmm. how? Talk to me about that transformation to where you just finally said, "Fuck it." <laughs> you know, okay. you coming out yeah. of your own, and I want to know how your peers at the naval mm-hmm. have responded to you becoming visible. Mm, that's 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 a great question. That's a great question. I think it was a process for me, and I think it really started when I got out of the military. When I took off that very, you know, conservative, you know, conformist culture. And honestly, when I went to graduate school, it was, there was just no accountability. It was just like, literally, whoever you want to be, be that and show up to class and and take your class. But like, be whoever you want to be. That's how I felt uh, when I went to grad school. Uh, Probably just because I was comparing it to where I had just come from, uh, the Marines. And so, honestly... Dude, when I was at the academy, uh, when I was in the military, I don't remember reading about black culture, black history, you know, just just black things. Uh, I, I don't remember doing that. And I wonder if on some level that was just me going hard with my, you know, adaptation and assimilation program. That was me going hard at just trying to fit in and trying not to remind myself of all the ways that I was that I was different and unique. Uh, but the process definitely for me was in the past couple of years, man. Honestly, that's not even that long ago. Uh, and I think it was just being exposed in law school to so many different ideas, so many different viewpoints and to be told, you know, when you go to a, uh, when you go to law school in general, when you go to grad school and especially when you go to an Ivy league school, you sort of get told that you can be interested in whatever you want to be interested in and you can do whatever you want to do. And, you know, coming out of the Marines where your career is scripted, I felt like I had to sit down and really think about who I even was as an individual. And I had to decide then who I was going to be, what I was going to be interested in and what I was going to do and dedicate my life to. Uh, I, I, I decided then that, you know, I need to start let me pick up these books. Let me I got James Baldwin on the library uh, in the, on the bookshelf right now. Uh, you know, I got, you know, all these different you know, black legal history or black history books, uh, because I just, I decided that's what I'm interested in. And I think each of us can be interested in whatever we're interested in. Uh, but I'm interested in people who have been oppressed, not just black people, but just people who have been oppressed. And I'm interested in how we can make this country better serve, uh, those oppressed communities and those poor communities who have been repeat losers throughout the history of this country. So I got interested in that. I do have to give credit where credit is due and point out that while I was in law school, I got into a relationship with an HBCU grad and uh, she's amazing. And she really pushes me to get more, you know, involved, to be a student of myself and my culture and my community and to, to, to work towards making the world better. And I think when you have someone there with you, holding you accountable and, and pushing you to, 
to be driven towards whatever it is you've decided to be driven towards. It can help you be a lot more successful and it can lead to, you know, just, just some positive, some positives in your life. I feel like for me, man, I got my second win education wise, mm-hmm. you know, like so mm-hmm. hard to learn more and just mm-hmm. more about myself and the world. You know, I've got, I'm a book stacker, man. You come out part, I got stacks of books, but American studies, African-American mm-hmm. studies, that is my wheelhouse. Autobiography mm-hmm. of Malcolm X, James Baldwin, Huey Newton, like all these different things. And it's like, you know, I was always kind of studying that stuff, to be honest, Nate, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. dorm rooms and everything. But it wasn't until I, how do I say this? Until I was, I fucking made a decision. It's like, I just mm. like, what kind of black person do I want to be and show up to this world? Right. And I want, I think a lot of times when we go back to our communities and we mm. try to tell our kids they can be like us, we don't even look like them anymore. Mm. We're like, it's like Clark Kent to Superman. You That's know? real. Um, that's very real. We don't have the beards. We don't have the skin cone. We don't have the dialect. It's like, that's why I call it cultural suicide. So they can't uh, see themselves in us. And I don't mean the sense of like, hey, what up, man? You know how I'm doing, man? Oh, man, you know what it is. But just the sense of like, yo, man, it's a black guy. You know, he's himself. Mm-hmm. He's cultured. He's not, he's unapologetic. And I think we need mm-hmm. more of that and less of what we've been sold by our elders. And I think they did the best with what they they did the best with what they had. But I think it's come at a cost in a sense of so many of us have to hide who we are. See, they didn't really accept us. They just wanted a version of us that made them feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. I want to I talk a little bit about the thought that you are so different because you go back and you dress a little bit different. You talk a little bit different. I, I think capture in that is the idea that Black people are you know, this one image of a black man or a black woman. And if you don't fit that image, you have done something to change yourself fundamentally. You have become sophisticated, you know, quote, end quote. Uh, but why can't I just be a black person who likes to, you know, why, why, why am I different? Am I really different? And then even if I am different, why am I now separated? Why is there a gulf between us? And this is just one of the things I think uh, that I've I've seen when people talk about black culture is like, it's almost like if you become too smart, you're not in the culture anymore. And I, I just, I reject that. I would, I, I just, I have to. And I think that our culture has always had smart people and our culture has always, ever since we could be educated, there have been educated black people. And I think the thought that when you become educated, you become an other, I don't know whose narrative that is, but that is not, black history. And that is not, you know, not just black people, because that's not anybody's culture. So, you know, the, to have that applied to us uh, is unfair. And it's, you know, I'm just, I'm, it's suspect to me. And I, I, I have some ideas about whose narrative that is. Uh, and I, I think it's my job to, to tear it down. I try to have this argument with people mm-hmm. and push back, mm-hmm. but like all these statistics that call us disadvantaged and, you know, parents not in the home and black education, this black education, that man, I look at a lot of these articles, man. And I just can't help but see this trend in who's writing and publishing these articles. And I don't mm. see it in a disrespectful way. I'm just like, yo, where are the Claude Anderson's, you know, mm. like the black bookstores, power nomic, mm. right? I used to think that stuff was foggy. You know, when you're coming up, Nate, they'd be like, man, you gotta go to black bookstore. I'm like, man, I'm, I ain't going to no off shelf bookstore. Let me go to Barnes and Nobles mm-hmm. you start to see. And you're like the African-American history section is like this little. Right. right. <laughs> One right. shelf. 
you know, not even a full shelf, like a quarter right. of a shelf is all right. the history we get dedicated to us. Right. And then That's you, it. And the black book, I mean, it's, the black book score is different. They got different books in there and, and it, it's going to engage you differently. Sorry, go ahead. And think about this though, right? I kind of help mm. think now, like a lot of those authors, man, they got blacklisted, man. You know, mm. the university was going to publish research on some of the topics they were talking about. Who mm. was fellowship to try to justify, you know, uh, the marijuana industry and drugs mm-hmm. and the economy. Because when you cut one group out of an economy, they create their own economy. Mm. Looking at them like criminals, you got to look at it just like the natural evolution of economics. But mm-hmm. that opens up a whole can of worms. But who is going to fund that kind of research and that kind of discussion? Right. Um, well, for a long time, it was HBCUs, right? That's where black intellectuals met and that's where they gathered. And I think over time, you know, actually, I, I think HBCUs are still that in a lot of ways. But I do think that there is a trend of if you are elite enough, then you sh- you're almost like considered too elite for HBCU. And once again, whose narrative is that? Whose narrative is that? And I think we got to change that and we got to tear that down. And that, you know, whatever school you go to, you can be a successful, educated black person that's there. Uh, and you're never too elite for a school just because the students at that school are black. As a Harvard law school graduate, mm-hmm. leaders of industry, I mean, that's the, that's the spot, right? Mm-hmm. You feel a pressure to conform a bit. I mean, because you always knew you could kind of be yourself. Like, it's cool. You know, we, we black in college, power to the people. But we about to, let me go get this corporate job. You know, let me make this, you know, this 500K a year. You know, how do you balance that when you have that opportunity? Uh, that's tough. That's tough. So I, I, I guess we're, we're sort of talking a little bit about cultural suicide, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. You know, what was the decision to, to, to go to, once again, to another majority white space? Uh, and, and then choose that as my path or choose that as my gateway uh, into my future. Uh, what I was thinking about is I'm looking for something that's going to give me maximum options. Uh, and I, you know, when I was applying to law school, I, I thought that would be Harvard. And I, and even more than it was going to give me maximum options, what's going to mean the most to black people? when I go back to Atlanta. And on some levels, it's unfortunate that I have to go to a white school in order to gain the prestige. You know what I mean? That's the only way I can put on this this Superman cape is to go to an Ivy League school, which is going to be a majority white school. And that's just going to make me different. Uh, And I think we have to acknowledge that we treat people from these schools differently. And we have to acknowledge that these schools really do open more doors than some other schools. And uh, th- that's that's systemic and that's something that probably needs to be addressed so that the opportunity and the wealth can spread around a little bit more. But I I wanted to take advantage. I wanted to go back specifically to my community, back to Southwest Atlanta where I am right now and be the black person that went to Harvard for, uh, for the people around me. Be that person that I didn't have growing up so that I could, you know, it, I can set that example and I can inspire someone and I can say, you know, to people that this is how I got here. You can do it too. And I don't think you have, like, you don't have to be special or like a super genius or really unique. You have to do these things. And I think that one of the things I learned at, you know, at Harvard is that for other people, for non-black people, non-brown people, they have people in their life like that. 
They know people who went to Harvard or they know someone who can tell them, hey, you have to do really real, really good on this test. But here's this boot camp that you can take and they'll get you ready for the test. I had never heard of that. I had never heard of that, that sort of, you know, the, those ways to create an advantage for yourself because I didn't have that pathway that had been already walked and already cleared by someone going before me. And that's just, and that's not because no one had done it. That's just because no one I knew personally had walked that path. And so I think to open that, that door for a lot more people, I got to be, you know, the person with a, a microphone or the person with a, a loudspeaker telling people the path and trying to inspire them to go on that path, whatever that path may be for themselves. And that doesn't mean that they have to go to Harvard, but just to inspire them to do whatever it is that they want to do. All right. I'm going to ask you a hard question now. Go. Okay. Go. okay. Yeah. Hard. In, in the age of George Floyd, right? Mm-hmm. Post George Floyd, the whole world is, America is woke. They found out we're black. Now people mm-hmm. are scrambling, right? One of the things I kind of struggle with, and I've just become aware about this is, do we give these institutions, whether it's a college, whether it's mm-hmm. a business, whatever, too much validity, you know what I mean? Too much mm-hmm. credibility in their absence of blackness by trying to press ourselves on them. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, let me reframe this, right? Our best and brightest, talented black people, we mm-hmm. go to institutions and we get there and we throw up our fist and we assert our blackness, right? We let them know we're here. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're giving them our talent, our intellectual property. They're promoting yeah. us and saying, look at us, right? But they don't have black yeah. staff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's no black Professor, mm-hmm. right? There's no black deans. There's none of black this. And so are we, again, I keep using this word, cultural suicide. Is it an inadvertent way to destroy our own culture by giving these other cultures too much validity? Yeah, that is a really tough question. Uh, I think I have to acknowledge that that's what's happening at some degree, because let's say, you know, Ivy League schools, I'm going to talk about law school a little bit. Ivy League law schools, they're competing for a relatively small population of black people when they're trying to make themselves diverse. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's like 400 black people total that all the top law schools are trying to get. And that's according to the standards and the metrics that they have decided makes you good enough to get into these schools, right? What if all 400 of those people went to any other school, but specifically, what if they went to an HBCU? I think you have to acknowledge that that would uh, uplift, you know, at least as far as those metrics are concerned, uplift that HBCU by bringing that influx of talent. And that's not to say that the people who do go to, you know, a black school or to a state school aren't talented. It's really just to say that it would change the game and it would change the narrative. And so by all those 400 black people or however many black people it is choosing to go to an Ivy League school, you're sacrificing that. That's just an opportunity cost. That's loss. That that hasn't happened and that won't happen. Um, So yeah, I guess what I'm saying is I I think that you're right. I think the decision that I and a lot of other people are making is in some degree selfish. You're deciding that I want these outcomes. You know, I I think this is going to create better outcomes for me. And I'm, you know, it's too hard to organize. Like I can't get everybody to, to, to make this move. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and, and, and get mine to some degree. I think that's one facet. And I think that the other way you can look at it is why do they get to have that space? Don't they get to have that space if we all decide not to go? Uh, so if you want to make this space more inclusive and if you want to, you know, get more black staff 
on, on, you know, Harvard, on the Harvard staff and get more black professors, whatever it is, whatever agenda you want to push, I think you got to be there to push it. And so it's even, even despite the trade-off and I recognize that trade-off, I think it's important that if you want to make these spaces more inclusive and if you want more black people and more brown people and more of the, of all the groups that normally get cut out of these spaces to be able to participate and to be able to enjoy those opportunities, somebody has to go there and make it so. And somebody has to go there and make it that way. And in a way, just your presence does that. But also in another way, when you go there and you uh, fight to change things and you fight for progress, I think that you move the ball you know, ever so slightly forward. And I recognize that that is in many ways ungratifying because we want to see touchdowns, not a one yard game. And we want to see, you know, these huge gains and not these, you know, these minuscule move- movements. But I think that, you know, uh, a lot of times that's the way that's the way these things go. And that's the way progress is made a step by uncomfortable step. So, again, these are just thoughts. We're having dialogue. Right. Listeners right. Out, right. This is not a right or wrong answer. OK, right. I'm, I'm just stirring up the horns and that's a little bit pushing. Yeah. But the reason I asked this, too, is because I've kind of I mean, for the longest time, we've been sold that affirmative action is our problem. You know, mm. that like you're not qualified. You're not this blah, blah, blah. Okay. And I flipped that script now. Affirmative action is your problem. If you're okay mm. with your office, you know what I mean? Your boardroom, your college, whatever. If you're okay of it being absent of blackness, that's on you. That ain't got nothing to do with me. Mm. You know? And you got to look around and be comfortable and say, are we really diverse as we think we are? You mm. know, are we really contributing to society? You know, we mm. like to say, oh, change lives, change the world, but are we really doing that? And so I push that. Now, here's what I'll say, though, right? As I look at history and I see us, you know, and I kind of call this our legacy generator. They're always like, well, you can't do anything unless you're there. You know, Mm. can't do anything unless you're there. I wonder if things will move when we get, when talented black people start going to these universities, to these uh, corporations, talent. And they're like, hey, we really want you to work here. We want you to come to school here. We're going to give you a full scholarship. He's like, no, I'm, I'm good. I don't want, I don't really want to attend here. Well, well, why not? We got everything you need. We're here. We got the talent. We got a strong alumni network. I'm like, you don't have any black professors. Mm. I don't really see myself included here. And I think Mm. in the absence of blackness is going to either one of two things going to happen. People are just going to really be who they are and just be like, well, we didn't really want them here in the first place. Or it's really going to have, make them question the foundation Mm. that they're building to attract talent and culture. Mm-hmm. in these places. And I think, again, it goes back to this, like we can be there and we can protest and we can do all this kind of stuff, but we can't help the fact that like we're still validating them. You know, and mm-hmm. they kind of, they right. throw a small win, you know, a little bit of win. We'll, we'll, you got the student lounge, you know, you call it a black lounge. No, I'm talking about like fundamentally, man, are we giving these institutions mm-hmm. too much credit at the expense of our own? And in the age of coronavirus, where our HBCUs are going to be bled dry, you know, mm. who else is going to teach this? Who else is going to cultivate and nourish black talent and tell black talent? You are a king. You are great. You don't have to go anywhere. You're great. How you are. Where is that going to come mm. from? If not our own institutions? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I, I see what you're saying. I, I definitely see what you're saying there. I just, it's tough, man. It's, it's tough. How you, ha- there is a cost to organize everyone. How are you going to get everyone to decide I'm going to say no to Harvard and I'm going to go to wherever else. And I think there is a, 
you know, an obstacle there. And it's one not only that's difficult to overcome, but I think it's one that, you know, these institutions of higher learning are counting on being too high to overcome. And so, you know, if, if we could do that, I do think you would see change. Um, because I think the narrative now is that you need to be diverse in order to be, you know, successful and to be prestigious. And I think if we took that away, uh, then it's going to be, it would be a problem and it would change, it would change outcomes. But I also think, you know, we're having this conversation about institutions of higher learning and we're talking about, you know, colleges and grad school, uh, but there's a whole population that, you know, isn't going to go to college and isn't going to go to grad school and they're still valuable and they are not even still valuable. They are valuable. They are important. And I don't think everyone needs to go to, to college or to institutions of higher learning. But I think that the, you know, that burden that we've been talking about, the, 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 the confidence sapper, that starts way before anybody goes to college or the, way before anybody goes to grad school. So I, I think the place to start is going to be where we do our indoctrination in this country. And that's in our schools. That's where you learn history. And that's where you have someone that's supposed to be affirming, you know, your performance and you're, gonna, you're supposed to graduate in 12th grade and then go take that out into the world and be like a good citizen. So I, I think if we want to, you know, push whatever narrative is going to have to start in our, in our schools, K through 12. I know, I know I'm being utopian with the statement about like somebody walking in and be like, nah, I'm not working at uh Bain and Co. I'm about to go work at Blavity or something. Right. That's, that's tough. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. And, and one more thing, one more point I want to make with that is, you know, I, I realized I, I, you know, my family was middle-class. I, I, my family is 100%, you know, a middle-class family. Uh, I felt poor when I went to Harvard because of how, wealthy it felt like everyone else was compared to me and uh i think for black people uh you see these elite spaces as a chance to get at that table that everybody has been talking about for so many decades and to start getting some money uh and i think that one is as a product of our you know capitalist society it, it is what it is uh but i think it it's it's harder and i guess that's another i guess what i'm saying is there's another obstacle to overcome not only do you have to convince people to be organized and to make this decision to uplift, uh, you know, to uplift our institutions, but I think you've got to be real and say, you might not be able to access that 200K a year job if you go to this other institution. And that's a problem. And that's something that we're going to work to overcome. But you, you know, you guys are going to be the first class. Y'all might have to take an L. And that's very uncomfortable. And that makes it even tougher. Uh, but I don't think it makes it impossible. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting idea. And I think it could make it can make some real changes. You know, one of the saddest things to me, though, is, especially as an entrepreneur up here in the Northeast, mm-hmm. when I meet talented brothers, know they mm-hmm. go to these schools, get their MBAs, get all this kind of stuff. And then when you ask them to kind of step out, as they start to step out into their greatness, whether it's launching their own venture or going after that mm-hmm. dream job they want, they say, I don't think I have enough experience or I don't think I have enough mm-hmm. this or I'm not ready. And I'm out here looking at like, yo, man, my man goes to fucking Stevenson University. Hofstra University, Manhattan College, State College, you know, Rutgers. And they're like, yeah, yeah. I can do whatever I want to do. I can do it. And I see black, I see fucking black talent going to these places and we're still questioning ourselves. And I'm like, damn, yeah. if you go to the best institutions in the world and you deep down question yourself, right? And are not yeah. feel like you are enough. What does that say for the kids back in Newark and Atlanta that are going exactly. to fam, exactly. not fam you, but going to, you know, Rutgers or Morehouse mm-hmm. or all these different places, man. And so that's why mm-hmm. I, I question sometimes. It's like, yo, man, and you talk to him, yo, that talent ain't getting cultivated like that. Mm-hmm. 
who's telling them this? And so to me, that is sadder. That is the saddest yeah. thing. Yeah. Bothers me because I'm like, yeah. it's like people see the greatness and potential of me. It's like, man, I see people that don't even have an ounce of what you have. Mm-hmm. Out there and fucking starting VC firms and they're going, they're just getting it, <laughs> you know. And we go to yeah. these places and we're like, oh, still, I need to go I'm here. Not sure. Dance. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's like, oh yeah. man. Yeah, I, f- I feel that way sometimes. I, you know, I say I want to be a local politician, you know, I want to run for office here in Atlanta. And sometimes I'm like, I'm not, I don't know if I got it. I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm, if I'm, if I'm talented enough, if I'm smart enough. And I think I got to go back to something I've said earlier. It's just like, who told you that? Who told you that? And you should be able to look around and see, you know, see that this person, you know, went to Hofstra. See that this person went to whatever school. Not to, not to knock on any school, uh, but you should be able to look around and see what it takes to get there and then to believe that you that you can do it. But it's like it's something it's something even deeper telling you you can't. And I think that's that's an American problem. And I think it's something that's drilled into you know, minority communities. I think it's something that's drilling into poor communities, black and white, that you can't make it um, and that you can't do more or that it's just going to, it's just going to require that much more. And even when you've gone to Harvard and even when you've done all these things, you still might not be good enough. That is not true. You know what I mean? It's something we got to shed and we got to change that. We got to change that, that belief in that narrative. Yeah. My plan for that is like stuff like this, like this podcast, man, getting that yeah. idea out there and really pushing people. Yeah, for sure. Last, yeah, I think you're doing a great thing. Mm-hmm. I appreciate it, man. Last question for you. Okay. Go. And then I think it brings it full circle for us. The talented 10th. Okay. Yeah. WB Du Bois. Like I see Harvard, man. Du Bois one first ones to get his PhD. It was either the boys yeah. or the good one, right? Was the boys the first one to get his PhD from Harvard? The African American. I think it was uh, Du Bois. He oh. said the pleasure was all his. As a well, his- pleasure was all theirs. Pleasure was all theirs. Yeah. Yeah. As a history guy, I see the boys. I see Carter G. Woodson. You know, like the first black history people. And I'm like, yo man, that's kind of dope. You know, Harvard kind of studying and getting it. But one thing I, I do wonder too, cause I've seen it, man. Like, let's be honest, like for every Mike Stebbins and Nate Jester that moves back to certain communities, you know, I moved back to Newark. I didn't move back to my hometown in Texas, mm-hmm, back mm-hmm. To Atlanta. you know, this idea that the talented 10th will somehow get this education and uplift the race. But what I kind of see happening and tell me if I'm wrong is it's not always the case. A lot of times what happens, you know, you get in the hustle, you get in the suburban house mm-hmm. and you for a job and then you find yourself moonlighting in the black community. You know, you might pop yeah. in there every now and then and keep it moving and not to equate that, that not being success, but in the mm-hmm. sense of like, yo man, if we're not taking our IP, if we're not taking all these knowledge and skills and expertise to uplift our community, mm-hmm. we expect anybody else to. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I think that's a little bit of the, you know, when I study poli sci, we talk about the brain drain that would happen in uh, countries that we consider less developed, where as soon people will come to the U.S. and get educated, get educated, and then decide, mm, I'm probably not going to go back to wherever country I came from. I'm going to stay here, and then that way, that country loses someone who is talented. I want to challenge the notion of the talented tip because I think that notion it. it encourages people to go out and get the the certificates the you know the 
I don't know the word, you know, to get to get the validation of someone else to say you're talented. So to be the talented tip, I, get, I think the thought is that I'm supposed to have gone to college and I'm supposed to, if you go to an Ivy League school, that's even more, you know, prestigious. You're even more of the talented tip. And I'm just like, who said that the Ivy League school made you talented? Who told you that? Uh, why can't the talented tip be whoever in the community decides to be? Do they have to be a college graduate? I don't think so. You don't have to be a college graduate to leave. Do you have to go to an Ivy League school? I say no. Anybody who chooses and who's willing to put in the effort and the energy to do it, that's the talented tip if we want to adopt that. But I, I, I'm just concerned that it's a little bit exclusive. You know what I mean? Or it's a little bit like you got to get the right degrees to be the talented tip. And basically, once again, we're limiting ourselves. And basically, once again, we're validating you know, somebody else's system and somebody else's structure, why should we do that? You know, why should we accept that? And I don't, it's not even that it's just like all white people are creating this and that you have to get the right checks. I think it's just powerful people creating it, white and black, and they're validating that system. And so if we want to be the talented tip, I think we have to decide for ourselves and we have to open our minds and our hearts and be willing to listen to people and follow people but based on you know who they are, what they're talking about, and what they're doing, not because they went to this certain school uh, or they got the right set of degrees that you know qualifies them according to someone else's standard. Nate, man, you're dropping gems, bro. I'm so proud of you. I'm listening to you talk. I'm like, my God, bro. I'm going to get this book written because Nate's going to beat me to the punch, bro. Man, nah, 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 man. I can't wait to read your book, man. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, for real. While you got our listeners, while you have our listeners' ears, right? We got a bunch yeah. of different backgrounds, diverse. Got a lot of mm-hmm. military officers. You know, to, uh, I've even got people from my hometown. People reached out to mm-hmm. me like, Mike, I have never heard black men talk the way you do on your podcast. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and so, you know, I kind of have this audience, right? And so people are like, I feel like you're creating hate and discontent by pressing them mm-hmm. and whatever. I'm like, man, get out of here, man. Go listen to somebody else's pod. Go listen to Fox News. This ain't Fox News. You know, we're, we're getting deep here and we're exploring thoughts that are conversations that are happening, whether you're in the room or not, these conversations are happening mm-hmm. behind those doors. Right. But I want to give you an opportunity to speak to the audience and any close remarks or thoughts you want to share with them to kind of change their perception of blackness or challenge them to think about certain issues. Because to be quite frank, Nate, people don't get a lot of interaction with people like me and you. Now they think mm-hmm. they know. I know you get the LinkedIn messages. Oh, yeah. hey, man, I, I know Nate. And you yeah. know, Nate, what are you talking about, man? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, well, you know, I, I didn't have this pre-planned. What's my parting gift to, to the audience? I, I think it is to uh, engage with people, to talk to people, and, and try to, if you know Black people, uh, talk to them and, okay, uh, if somebody said this to me, actually in the military, I asked somebody, they said, try this, try asking someone how they're doing and then actually caring and listening. And I think for most of us, that's going to be a change from your normal behavior. We say, hey, how you doing? Especially in the South, all the time I say, walking down the street, I'm not even stopping to listen. You know what I mean? Really, I'm, the, the correct answer is fine. And then we're going to keep it moving. Try to build that relationship to where you can ask someone how they're doing and they can tell you. And I think it's going to be hard. And I think you're going to have to take, you know, break through uh, barriers uh, that have been formed by that person's experiences. And then people carry you know, a lot of baggage when people have had negative experiences in their lives. And I think that's going to be yeah, that's something that you're going to have to work. And in a way, you're taking on 
uh, a bit of a burden to even try to do that. And that's going to take some energy and that's going to be a cost. And once you have, you know, once they, once you get that person to be able to talk to you and to, uh, and feel comfortable enough to share their true self with you, I think you have to listen to them. Uh, beyond just thinking, how does this affect me? What is this saying about me? I, I think a lot of time when we talk and we talk and me, 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 and I think you need to validate that person and, and just believe them, like take them seriously. Like, uh, understand that if they are comfortable enough to open up to you, then they're going to be coming to you with something that they truly feel. And that doesn't mean you have to agree. You know what I mean? You know, in these conversations, these difficult conversations we're having, but I do think it, need, it, means, it, it means you need to be open. Uh, and I think just in American culture, there's just certain things that are taboo and that we don't talk about. And I think the things that are taboo and that we don't talk about are where all of the American issues hide. Um, and, and that's a problem. And it lets them continue to fester and it lets them continue to, to, to be this just poisonous cycle passed down generation to generation like a disease. If we want to get rid of it, we got to identify it. And to identify, we got to talk about it. My man, I appreciate yes, you, man. I appreciate you coming on this platform. So what's what's next for Nate Jester? Man, what's next? Look, I got I got this bar exam coming up. That's not going to be cool, but it is it is online now. So at least I don't have to worry about you know catching a catching a deadly virus while I'm in a room full of people taking the bar exam. I got that coming up. I start work uh, at Jones Day in November. Uh, but honestly, man, right now, this summer, and honestly, for the foreseeable future, I'm looking at, you know, Atlanta, the community where I live. I'm going to these neighborhood meetings. I'm going to, you know, the, the community meetings. You know, I, I'm trying to get involved uh, because I, I think I've started to accept that I have value to add, uh, like everyone else does. And I got to participate in this process in order to move the ball forward, in order to make things better. And so, you know, that's what's next for me in a nutshell. I'm excited to follow you on your journey, man. Where can people Absolutely. follow you at? Okay, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Nate underscore Jester. That's N-A-T-E underscore J-E-S-T-E-R. Or you can follow me. Uh, you can find me on Instagram. Uh I'm, I'm looking it up. This is how bad I am with social media. I got to look up my own name on Instagram. It's Nate underscore Jester underscore ATL. So you can find me there. And honestly, for all the listeners out there, if you want to talk about something, uh, reach out to me on one of those platforms and I'll talk to you about it. Just come to me with an open mind, come to me, you know, really trying to learn and really trying to get better. And we can talk about it because I think these conversations need to happen. Uh, and not just between two black men, but between, you know, a black man in the world. Man, I had to go to the Naval Academy, had the Pledge of Fraternity, had to get shot at just to meet and know a black Harvard graduate. And now you're just, giving them the plug right away. I'm like, God, you know, I know one person that has a that runs a podcast. And I like you said, I had to go to the Naval Academy and the Marines and the infantry at Harvard to know one person that was a podcast. And I, I think we got to open it up, man. That's the point of this podcast is to make it more accessible. I want to make myself more accessible. Uh, to to people so that we can have these we can have these talks, man, on a on a much wider scale. Absolutely, man. Lift as we climb. I'm I'm thinking the Absolutely. future, man. We're gonna do confessions of a native son live. You know, yeah, on campus, like whatever. People buy tickets and they're gonna hear dope people having open and honest conversations for the culture. Absolutely. But again, yeah. my brother from another, some love for coming on the platform. I hit him up, man. He was like, I would love to come on. Didn't even really tell him what we'd be going over. Just kind of gave him a man. He really. <laughs> 
But <laughs> it's got to be free flowing, man. People, should yeah, I feel you. Podcast. I, I mean, I've been on a lot of podcasts, but a lot of people they've never done it, so it's like a big experience for them. But I like to trust in my abilities as a host to kind of guide the conversation and not I press people, but I don't really blow people up on the spot. You know? mm. Yeah, yeah, I think it's I think it's important. So for our listeners out there, do me a favor. Be sure to subscribe and support this podcast by giving a spot five stars and leaving a review on iTunes. Also, forward this show to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with the subject matter. Be sure to order some dope coffee at www.realdopecoffee.com. We've got to start supporting our own businesses, Black-owned, veteran-owned, minority-owned business. Started from another brother from another mother, Mr. Mike Lloyd, my co-producer. As you know, I'm Iron Mike Stedman from Ironbound Boxing. You can visit our website, ironboundboxing.org. Every donation allows us to support free amateur boxing training, entrepreneurial education, and employment opportunity programs for youth and young adults in low-income communities. This summer, we launched Thrive, our small business incubator specifically designed for youth and young adults age 14 to 22 in Newark, New Jersey. Thrive participants will have an opportunity to pitch for 7K in cash prizes upon completion of the following curriculum, how to start a business, marketing, small business finance, and entrepreneurial leadership. Are you ready to get in the fight and help our kids thrive? If so, it's time to put your money where your mouth is. Posting and commenting on social media is one thing. Being bold and taking action is another. We could use your help. Donate today at ironboundboxing.org. Message me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at mike at weareironbound.com. Special shout out to my co-producer, Mr. Mike Lloyd, and the team from the Gifted Sounds Network, rooting for everybody that's black. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man, now don't that feel nice, man? I love your brother, black man, and chase your dreams, black man. And get that cream, black man, we the original man.